for Anchor Church. Uh, we are working our way through John's Gospel in 14, 15, and 16. So if you don't have a Bible, we have some over there. Please feel free to grab one. If you don't own a Bible, even if you think it's dumb, please take it home with you. I'm just asking you, please take it home and give it a look. Start in Matthew and just keep reading. Um, so what we've been doing in this series uh, is we're looking at Jesus' final words to the disciples and in so doing, he's told them the things that they should believe and the things they should trust in him for. And, and as a church, it's so important for us to take time, particularly if you're a member of this church or if this church is home for you, that we're on the same page with the things that we believe because the elders are not the only people that are responsible for this church or the things that are preached in this church or the things we do as a church. But the church together, to be a member of a church, to be a member of this church, is to say that you that you are taking responsibility for this people, and this people are taking responsibility for you. And so it's so important that we're on the same page with things, and so important that you know what we believe about things, even so we can better minister one to another. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll dig in to John, starting in 15 and 1. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day, and we are your people. We just confess right now, without you, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do without you, Jesus. But in your grace and in your sovereignty and in your mercy, you've saved us from ourselves. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us new hearts. And you've given us and empowered us to love you and serve you. And I just pray that in you we would bear much fruit. That we would be people that live enjoying you with everything that we've got. That we would be a people who point to your beauty and to your glory. That we would be a people in the high places and in the low places, in the hard days and in the good days. That we point to your goodness and the reality that Jesus, you've come to set us free. And that it's for freedom that you've set us free. And in that freedom, there's joy. And that the point of this whole thing is you, Jesus. The whole point of my life and our life and our church is you, Jesus. And just please empower us to love you more and love each other more and love our city more uh, every day. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. Um, so today, we, we, every, every sermon series we said, believe Jesus about fill in the blank. And, and today, we're going to believe Jesus about salvation. My James Brown microphone trick. There we go. Can you still hear me? We're going to believe Jesus about salvation. And, and every week as we come to a new topic, I've been surprised again and again at how each of these topics serves as a kind of corrective. That there's usually one thing we believe or another, or, or really often in life we find ourselves falling into one ditch or another. We overdo it one way or we overdo it another way. And in fact, when we listen to God's word and we listen to what Jesus has to say, we come to a whole understanding of the things to believe and the things that he has to say. And this is no, no different than for salvation with salvation. Uh, um, salvation is not just, it is, so hear me, it's not that it isn't, it's not just that you've been saved from the sins that you committed before you are a Christian, uh, it's not just that you're saved from your sins after you're a Christian, uh, it's not just that you get to go to heaven, uh, it's not just that you get saved from one thing or another, but that it's a whole life that we get in Christ, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a whole life, Jesus, God himself, entered into human history to save us from ourselves. Jesus came down to get to us because the reality of the gospel is the truth that you and I can't get to God and that God came to get to us. That I didn't love God first, but that God loved me first. That Jesus is the one who laid down his life. That Jesus has done the work. And that in the reality of salvation, we're saved from things and we're saved to things. And often we miss the two. 
You're saved from sin. You're saved from all your wrongdoing, everything you've ever done wrong to God or to man, and including all the right things you've done for the wrong reasons, everything you've done to try and be right in God's eyes, everything you've done so people would tell you that you're awesome, everything you've done in the category of false religion, and everything you've done that's idolatry. And idolatry is the place where we try and displace God from his right place in the center of the universe. Idolatry is where we put something else in the center of our lives other than God. All of these things are sin, and Jesus paid the price for all of them. He saved us from judgment and, and from, from justice even. He, he took the cup so we don't have to. But not only that, we kind of can have a tendency, I think, to stop right there and miss the fact that he saved us to something. That we are Christians. We're saved to God. We're saved to a life in God. Not just in the future sometime, but right here and right now, you and I get Jesus out of this deal. You and I get the gospel out of the deal. You and I get new hearts out of the deal. You and I get the Holy Spirit out of the deal. You and I are dwelt by God in the deal. You and I can open God's word and hear the voice of God. You don't just say from stuff, friends. That in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're saved two things, and namely Jesus. And if we forget either side of that, we're saved from sin and that we're sinners that we need to be saved, or if we forget that we're saved to joy in Jesus, we're saved to a life pointing to the beauty of God and his glory. If we miss either of these things, we've missed out on some of what we get. We miss out on some of our salvation. And I think a text that's going to illustrate this so clearly is here in 15 and 1. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1. Jesus says this. I am the true vine, and my father is a vine dresser. The vine dresser, pardon me. Now, here is the problem with texts like these. Now, granted, wine is becoming more popular in Washington State, but does anybody know a vine dresser or what a vine dresser is in the room? No? Maybe nobody? Anybody? No. Right? Another really reasonable translation of this particular word is farmer. You might not know a farmer, but you might know what a farmer does. Right? So he's the vine, and God the Father is the farmer. Now, it says that he's the true vine. Another way that you could say that is that he's the, the genuine vine. He's the authentic vine. He's the real vine. He's the realest of the real vine. If you'd go with me to Isaiah, chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Listen to this. The vineyard, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, he found bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Uh, one of the repeated images, and you'll see this when you read John. So John wrote John's Gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. John loves to, to point out Old Testament imagery. And Jesus, as you get to know Jesus and his, hear his words, is constantly pointing back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, this idea of vineyard or vine is used in a number of places for Israel. Who's Israel? The people of God. Now, what's the deal with that? And why did we even look at Isaiah? So here's the deal. So the people of God were in covenant with God. And the Old Testament and the Old Covenant was, I will be your God and you will be my people and you will walk in my ways. Have you ever read the Old Testament? How'd that work out for them? Didn't at all. It was horrible. So why is Jesus hearkening back to this imagery? He's the genuine vine. 
He's the true vine. Well, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to listen to God, love God, obey God. How'd they do? Bad. What does Jesus do? Perfect. Perfect obedience. Perfect submission. Perfect love. Perfect trust. Why is that important? The people of God failed where Jesus did not. You and I on the other side of the cross, we live in what's called the new covenant. And the new covenant has a covenant. And yeah, it is. I will be your God and you will be my people. But as we see from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which we won't go to so that we can eat lunch before lunchtime is over. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which is a tongue twister, we hear that, that God is going to do something big. Though you were unfaithful, though the people were unfaithful, I'm going to move, and it's not just that you're going to walk in my ways, but that I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. I'm going to empower you to walk in my ways. And so the new covenant of the gospel of Jesus Christ is though we have failed, Jesus is not. Not only has Jesus not failed, but as we're going to see in a minute, he moves in my life and in your life to empower you and I to follow Jesus. Never feel like God has left you alone with a stack of things to do that he's not going to empower you to do. Because that's not the gospel and that's not what the Bible says, and I'll prove it to you. So he's the true vine. He's the real vine. The people of God failed. Jesus didn't. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. Or does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. And we'll talk about the other branches here in a second. This is what's called sanctification. This paragraph's amazing because it represents all these different facets of our salvation. One of the things that you and I are saved to is sanctification. What's sanctification? Sanctification is the process by which God in his sovereign grace and mercy makes you more like his son and cleans house on your life. Peter's going to use the metaphor of, a, of a, a crucible, a refining fire. The heat gets turned up and the impurities get taken out and what's left is pure gold. Why is that important? You're not alone. Do you ever feel like you want to change? Do you ever see something in your life that you wish were different, particularly in the light of who Jesus is? Somewhere you wish you were more loving, more kind, more patient, more peaceful, the fruit of the Spirit, and so on, and there's more. So often our default mode is, okay, I need to be more patient. And we grip our hands around the idea of patience. And then all of a sudden, there's something that's rocking our patience. And we say, I must be more patient so that I can be more patient so that everyone knows that I'm a good Christian. What is the problem with that? As the vice clamps around that, what happens? It's like one of those cartoons where the whistle blows and Fred Flintstone, like his eardrums pop out, which is a horrible image. The top pops. It's not freedom. Spending your whole life Pushing down on the pot of patience or love or kindness. That's not love and it's not patience. You're not patient in your heart in that moment. And I'm not saying there's not a war to be waged to show people kindness and patience and identifying, man, I am not being patient with this person. But the thing that we do is that we think that it's up to us to do it. That is not freedom. The freedom and the good news of the gospel is that we turn to Jesus. How patient has Jesus 
been with you. If he's been as patient with you as he has been with me, he's been pretty patient in your life. That's fuel for the fire of patience. The fuel for the fire of patience in my life is not that I would make myself more patient. But even as I'm doing that, what's he doing? He's refining me. He's pruning us. The Holy Spirit shows us sin, and it's a grace and a gift because he's not done with you. If he's showing you messed up stuff in your life, whether you're doing something for the praise of other people or you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing, you're wiling out or you're doing false religion, he's not giving up on you. There's nothing worse than having someone say, I don't care what that guy does. I'm done with him. Hebrews is so gracious to us. It says that this is not always pleasant, but it is grace. It's not pleasant to see inside and say, man, I'm not patient. I'm just pushing that stupid lid down. He goes on. Already, oh man, this guy's good. Already, hear that word, already. Another very reasonable way you translate this particular word. Now, when's now? Now. Speaking of the apostles, but this is true of us too. Already, you are clean. Because the word I've spoken to you. I thought I had to put on my Sunday best. I thought I had to do the patience push-ups. I thought I had to try harder. I thought I had to do these things so God would love me. Anchor Church, already you are clean. What makes us Christians is believing with our hearts and confessing with our lips. Jesus is who he says he is. That's what makes you a Christian. Now, of course, we're going to look at how you know that that's true in a minute, because the whole salvation. But if you love Jesus, if you believe Jesus, you're forgiven. You're loved. You're clean. You're clean. And I say this often, and I'm going to keep saying it often, because you need to hear it, and I need to hear it. The reality is, is that we default to Jesus paid the price for all my sins before I became a Christian, and oftentimes we feel like then everything else is up to me. We miss that Jesus paid the price for all of our sins, and because he's sovereign king of the universe and outside of time, he snatched you up out of the fire and out of your sin, knowing all the sins you'd commit against him, even after he saved you. Now, that's not a license if you're texting someone about what you can do this afternoon, get the party on because it's go time, you haven't actually heard the good news of the gospel because what that's supposed to do is empower our hearts and our minds to love and be faithful to Jesus because of how much he's loved us and how much he's forgiven us and how much he's given us in salvation. You're already clean. Why? Because the word that I've spoken to you, the doctrinal truth, the truth counts. Talking about ditches. Here's two ditches we love as people. We love the action ditch, and we love the doctrine ditch. Right? The doctrine ditch says, all I have to do is believe right things, and I don't actually have to do anything with it whatsoever. That's a ditch. That's wrong. Nowhere will you find that in the Bible. So often you find solid doctrine just laced with action. And at the same time, we can have just action. Well, I'm right with God because I'm a nice person. I'm right with God because I do nice things. I'm right with God because I'm so awesome. I'm right with God because I'm rad. You may be rad at pinball, but that doesn't make you right with God. Okay? So the two ditches are ditches. They're just that. 
Because the reality is that if you understand how much God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus, how much are you going to forgive other people? Again, if you've been forgiven as much as I have, you've been forgiven a lot. A lot. Right? And that produces love and kindness and grace towards others. Right? And the actions without Jesus are nothing. They're ditches. You want to be in the middle. Let's keep going. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. How often do you use the word abide? It's a good word. I don't, unless I'm preaching, and here I am. And we could build some complex stuff around abide, but I just want you to know what it means. Remain. Stay. Dwell. Live. This is a really huge Old Testament concept of dwelling. Over and over and over and over and over again. God would dwell amongst his people. Why a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire over the tabernacle and the Ten Commandments? Because God made his dwelling place with people. Why? Why is God going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be? You know what I mean? Like, he's going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be, and we're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth with him forever. And what does it say at the very end of the book of Revelation? The dwelling place of God with man. What is that doing? That puts back together what we broke. God made everything good. Human beings broke it. God made the earth good. He made human beings good. We listen to Satan and in league with Satan, try and displace God from his right place at the center of the universe. But how did things look in the garden with God in Genesis 1 and 2, and 2 specifically? The dwelling place of God was with man. The dwelling place of God was with human beings. And someday, it will be fully, totally, and completely realized. And Paul uses this language. It's like a mirror when you take a shower. You know, the more kids you have, the harder it is to get a shower every day. But there it is when you're in the mirror and it's foggy. Like, oh, hey, yeah, shower, that's what this thing is. Maybe that's just me. And everyone else is like, ooh, don't sit next to that guy. Um, hey, life goes on. Um, but Paul's going to use this metaphor. It's like a, a, a foggy mirror. That's what it's like now. God's dwelling place is with us now. The Spirit has taken up residence inside, inside of us now. We've seen this in John's Gospel. You see it in Romans 8. You'll see it all over. This is the new covenant. Jesus died to make you clean and holy so a holy, right God could manifest his presence with you. That's how he's there. Not because you're awesome or you try hard, but because he made you clean so God in his holiness can actually dwell with you. Okay? So... The dwelling place of God is with man, will be with man, and if you're a Christian, it's with you now. But it's, it's a foretaste. It's a little appetizer. Because when we're there with him forever, you're not going to forget that God's with you all the time. Because you're going to be like, where, where is he he's with you? Oh, Jesus is down there in New Jerusalem. It's, it's awesome, and he's there. Let's go visit him. Now you have to remember and remind yourself and come back to the truth and even have Christians point out the truth to you. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. God is with us. We say that in a real and tangible way. But part of what the Holy Spirit does is manifest this, remain. Remain in my love. Remain in me and I in you. How can Jesus do that? How can he say that? Because he sent his presence in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Because, yes, he's seated at the right hand of God on high, and he's with us now. And if you've ever had a four-year-old ask you theological questions, this one comes up, because they're smart. Well, how can he be at the throne and be right here? 
And then you say, uh, hey, what's that? And you run. <laughs> what you actually are supposed to say, parents, if I may, is I don't know. Can I go talk to somebody and look it up? Don't make something up. Because usually when I make something up that's theology, it's not good. It's way better to let your kids know I'm learning and so are you. Just hang on. Let me look it up. Moving on. Abide in me and I in you. Now hear this. Oh, man, this is good too. As the branch cannot bear, cannot bear fruit by itself, on your own, without Jesus, you will not bear fruit. There are two kinds of people, two kinds of branches, those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ. The only way to bear fruit is in Christ, with Jesus. Unless it remains, abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Now hear this. So hear the change from verse 1 and verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. So first we heard the Father is the vine dresser, and now we hear who these branches that are in Christ are. I'm the vine, you are the branches. We run into the problem of metaphor, because metaphor breaks down, right? Like, well, what are the branches doing if they're not on the vine? Are they really branches? And It's a metaphor, so hang on. <laughs> unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Here in 1 and 5, I always love to point these out. Talk about Old Testament. This is one of those ego and me, and I'm not talking about a toaster waffle, the ego and me verses. You can think of it, though. If that helps you remember, oh, it's one of those toaster waffle verses. Yeah. In the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the old LXX, when God speaks about himself as in places like uh, Exodus 3 and 14, where God says, I am who I am, he says, ego ami. Now, here's the funny thing, and I point it out every time because you need to memorize it. It's burned in your brain. You don't need the ego. You don't need the waffle to say in me. It, 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 it puts more force to it. It makes it weightier. It points to it more. Ego in me. I am. And so they're, they're, they're hearing as Jewish hears. The thing they would have heard is, wait a second. Did he say the thing that, they, that God said in Exodus 3? Is he saying what I think he's saying? And oftentimes people will, well, if Jesus was God, why didn't he say it more? Well, you're not, you don't have the Jewish listening ears. There's a reason when he says stuff like this, they say, give me a rock. I'm going to throw it at him because he's blaspheming. A little ego, right? A toaster waffle makes people pick up rocks. No, it, it signals to them he's saying things that they think are blasphemous because you're not supposed to say that you're God, by the way, because you're not, by the way. But how much points out that you're not God more than this? As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in me. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. There we go. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. And we'll talk about what it looks like to bear fruit in a second. But in Christ, we bear fruit. Okay? There can be a sense amongst Christians, among certain Christians in particular, where we get this idea, where we take verses where it says, you can do nothing without me. And, and, and the idea that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing that pleases God in Hebrews. And we have this idea, and we walk around with this sense that you and I can't live a life pleasing to God. That's half-truth. 
Apart from Christ, on your own, you cannot and will not live a life pleasing to God. You will not bear fruit apart from Christ. There is no godly spirituality or life lived without Jesus, period. However, friends, if you are in Christ, what is God going to do with you? Bear fruit. In Christ, you can actually live a life pleasing to God for his glory and for our joy. Now, that life looks really different than I think what a lot of us think it is, but we'll get there too. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I showed you half of what I keep in my Bible before I get ready to preach. The other half is over here. And one of the things that I look at and remind myself of every day before I have the weighty responsibility of standing up here and saying, this is what the Bible says, is I read this verse to myself under A, because John Piper has all these weird things, if you know John Piper at all. Appetat, which isn't that helpful. So I have to have the whole thing written here, but the, the top of the list says this. Admit to the Lord, without him I can do nothing. And what do I have but John 15 and 5? This can't happen without Jesus. I could get up here and I could talk about some Greek syntax and make some interesting observations, but if what we're doing here is a Christian activity of opening God's word and saying, this is what Jesus has said, that can't happen without Jesus. So we need him. Apart from him, you can do nothing. What's nothing? Nothing, 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 nothing. But what about if you're not apart from him? What if you're in him, right? I think we kind of stop there, particularly uh, thanks to uh, 15th, 16th, and 7th century uh, Protestant theology. Sometimes we stop right there. Apart from God, you can do nothing. Absolutely right. First got to share the gospel with me. You know, quoting Isaiah, your works are filthy rags, and apart from him you can do nothing. And the thing that the guy missed was, you're absolutely right, but in Christ, when you say, Jesus, I love you, and you mean it, that glorifies God and brings joy. When you tell other people, Jesus saves sinners, and he'll save you too, that is pleasing to the God of the universe. When you lay down your life for others, when you give what you've got to help take care of other people, when you take responsibility for Christians and love them and serve them and point people to Jesus, this is pleasing to God. You can't do it without Jesus. And this is bearing fruit. You can bear fruit in your life. Well, you can't, but Jesus can bear fruit in your life, which you get to be participants in. I mean, so often... Man, 2014 is a weird place to live as a Christian, is it not? There's a sense of like, it's the, it's the elder's job or the pastor's job. They're the guys that are going to be spiritual and mature. They're the guys that are going to bear fruit. They're the guys that are going to do stuff. No, that's not what it said. This is for you and for me, regardless of what my job is. In Jesus, I get joy. And in Jesus, I get to bear fruit. And in Jesus, I get to live and do. If you met Jesus 10 seconds ago, you could still bear fruit. Apart from him, you can do nothing. But this process begins for all of us immediately. So does pruning. But hey, if anyone does not abide in me, oh yeah, here we go. Okay. Uh, apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6. Now here's an interesting nerd out syntax moment. It's less obvious in the English as it is in the Greek. Jesus is switching tenses. Why is that important between five and six? There's a really pronounced tense switch. And before two years ago, 
before I went to language boot camp, where Jan Verbergen, the man from Belgium, put me through the ringer. If you had said, so which ones, if you said, what third person? I would have said, eh, mm. I would have less hope if you said, well, what's a participle? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> First person, second person, third person. We're switching from you are the branches of this line, you, to a third person, uh, I, you, they, right? There's a switch, and it's really, it's really pronounced. And if, we're, if we pay attention, there's a reason for why I'm going to even say that. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers. This is a classic get freaked out about losing your salvation verse. That's why I say it. Because people get and say, well, am I, am, am I, well, if I'm not doing enough, if I'm not, if I'm not trying hard enough, I'm not doing enough of my homework, I didn't read enough books this week, I didn't, I didn't do enough Christian stuff this week, I didn't listen to enough Christian radio this week, uh, I, uh, oh, what am I going to do? I wasn't generous enough. I didn't read my Bible. I didn't pray. Be generous. Read your Bible. Pray. You have access to the God of the universe, his very words in the scriptures. And you have full and unfettered access to talk to God. But we don't talk to God so he doesn't throw lightning bolts at us. We talk to God because you can. You get to meet with God any time you want. But Twitter, Facebook, my news phone app, Minesweeper. I got better things to do. I got Minesweeper I got to deal with here. Do you want to still play Minesweeper? Me listening to Journey, playing Minesweeper. Uh, there are better things to do in life, and one of those is communion with God can happen all the time. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. One of the primary Old Testament images for judgment is fire. When you're reading the New Testament here, fire, a lot of times it's judgment. It's either purification or fire, typically. There may be others, but fire is a big one. And, and I think in Seattle we say, oh, you guys believe in a God that judges people. Oh, well, you're judging me right now for believing in a God who judges people. So, hey, you thought about that? Hmm, karma. Karma sounds really nice if you think you are awesome. If you think you are rad, karma is awesome. I only have the good, good things. If I do enough good things, good things happen to me. And then bad people who do bad things have bad things happen to them. Well, who says they're bad? Judgy? <laughs> it's judgments. Right? People judge. You believe the universe judge. I believe that God judges. It's, it's not actually different. It's very rare that you actually meet someone tried and true who does not actually believe in judgment. It's just one of the sound bites we throw at the Bible because we live in a time and a place where if you took the worst three snippets out of this book, the harshest, hardest three snippets out of this book and beat that drum, yes, it will sound hard and harsh. God is love. That one's been co-opted and stolen, but that came from here. God is love. Uh, not only that, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That came from here. Slow to anger. 
most quoted Bible by the Bible in the Old Testament, that God is slow to anger. He's patient with us. How patient is he with us? Oh, man, he's patient with us. Even before I met him, he was so patient with me. I was so organized against him, completely and wholly. Holy with a W, not with an H. And he was patient with me. And he was kind with me. And he saved me from myself. And if you're a Christian, I think you know what I'm talking about. But there will be judgment. It will be dealt with. Nastiness will be dealt with. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish or will. Another great way to translate that word will, like that you're willing, not that like, do whatever you will, like Shakespearean, but, but what's your will? Ask your will. Because here's the reality. If you have a new heart, and you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you're soaked in the word of God, what comes out in our prayers? Bible. Jesus, will you do that thing that you said you'd do? God, you've said this about yourself. Maybe that's not, you know, it doesn't have, I'm not telling you how to, you have to pray. But what I'm saying is this. That when our lives are synced up, and we talked about will a couple weeks ago. When our lives are synced up with the kingdom, and namely the king, what comes out is not, how do I get me the furthest down the road? How do I get myself furthest down the road? What comes out is, Jesus, your will be done. Manifest your kingdom on earth. Lord, please grow Anchor Church in the gospel. Please grow us as a people who love you. Pray for your church. I know what God's will is for you, that you would grow in the gospel. It's not, I know what God's will is for you. You should get a truck. Help me move next week. I need to move. I, I have a sense that someone needs to buy a truck in the room today. Wrong. No. I know from scriptures that he desires all men to be saved. There's a desire that all people repent and come to knowledge of him. Right? I know that he desires that you bear much fruit. Why? Again, not because you need to bear fruit by helping me move next week. I have some bags of concrete that you can help me move in my backyard. Because it says so right here. When I'm preaching, I'm going to encourage you guys. And if you're not holding a Bible right now, I'm not shaming anyone. Can I say that first? I would encourage you, though, make sure I'm saying what's in here. It's right here. Okay, let's keep going. By this, so you see two purposes here, verse 8 and our last verse, in verse uh, 10, I think. By this my Father is glorified. The beauty of God is displayed. God is pointed to in his wonder and in his power. And God is magnified in the way that we love him and trust him and point to him. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Well, how do I know someone loves Jesus? They bear fruit. And now this is the spot where you're like, okay, well, you know, Jim Elliott had all this awesome big fruit, and I just, you know, drive a truck in Seattle. Jim Elliott was a missionary in the middle part of the last century. Well, you know, that guy, that guy teaches Greek at a seminary somewhere in a closed country, and I program software. And we put things on a grade, and we start comparing ourselves to other people, whether or not we're bearing fruit. What did Jesus say to uh, Peter at the end of John's Gospel that we'll get to? You remember this? Peter's being restored. 
He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. He says, stop asking me that. What he misses is he's being restored because he denied him three times. And then he says, he gets the good news, which is sort of bad news for Peter in this moment. He's not going to be unfaithful again. He's going to make it to the end, and he's going to die a martyr's death. And he's there with John, and what does he say? He doesn't say, oh, thank God, thank you, Jesus. The, cro- the cock's not going to crow again. I'm not going to betray you again. He says, what about John? What do you mean a martyr's death? What about that guy? What does Jesus say? He says some things. I won't give you the exact quote, but he essentially says, don't worry about that guy. You worry about you. How often do we worry about that guy and not you? And here's the problem, right? Especially if you're not living in community with other believers, and maybe you just see people on Sunday, you're like, man, that guy's got it together. It's working out for him. Because you're judging what's going on in here in your life, day in, day out, how hard of a week you have had, by what somebody else looks like when they got their Sunday best on. Do not judge your insides by somebody else's outsides. Don't do it. You'll go crazy. He's going to bear fruit in your life. Every time you confess that Jesus is Lord, you know there's fruit being born in your life. Maybe nobody even is going to see this, but God's going to see this, and God's going to move. Maybe no one else sees the difference. Maybe you're like, oh, yeah, I keep pushing that patience pot down, right? I'm doing the spiritual push-ups of not seeming angry at my coworkers, even though I talk to them with my teeth clenched. And one day, you act the same way that you acted the day before, but there's freedom there. That you didn't not lash out at your coworker because you were holding it inside, but because you tasted the gospel and you saw how good God is. Guess what? Nobody might even see it. There's still fruit. There's still fruit. We could talk about that at length, but we have to keep going because we have more verses to get to. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Man, can we just sit and stew on that promise? This is true for you. The way the Father has loved me, so I love you. You ever sinned? Right? I won't quote you first, John, because if you say you have no sin, then I'm doing it. Say you have no sin, truth's not in you. We've all sinned, right? We've sinned. We've rebelled. As my Father has loved me, so I love you. Us unlovely creatures, He's loved us and poured His love out on us. Not because of anything. You've done nothing to earn the love of God, and yet He's loved you. Abide in my love. Live, dwell, sit, stay in my love. Not sit, stay, like a dog command, sorry. The Hebrew word is sit, stay, or dwell. And so that's where it came from. I don't mean dog commands. There you go. But hey, that's what happens when you got a vocabulary card burned in your brain. Um, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. Well, what has Jesus done? He's kept the commands of God the Father. He's done exactly what he said to do. He's trusted him. Understand that the commands that God gives us is because God actually knows how life works best. We are very good at taking the things that God makes and turning them into things that we worship, we sin with. God actually tells us how to do the things that we should do with the things that we have. We trust him. We believe him. You abide in my love. 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments, abide in his love. There's freedom in the commandments of God. These things, now here this is that second purpose. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God's glory, our joy, right? Glory, joy. We have a tendency, I think partially because we live in a society where we take three sound bites from the whole Bible, to think of God as the cosmic killjoy, that those commandments, that obeying those commandments, that listening and trusting in Him, I mean, that's really going to ruin your life. That's gonna, believing the Bible is really going to ruin your social life, and your social life's important, so don't believe the Bible, right? Don't listen, well, at least not all of it. Like God is love stuff is fine, but the rest of it, stay out of there. God's given us gifts that we tend to take and use in odd, sinful, and horrible ways. He's shown us how we're to live, and namely, to remain in his love, to know Jesus, and to commit our lives to knowing him and loving him and serving him. And it turns out as we're bearing fruit, there's great joy. Those moments where you're not patting yourself on the back because you got a kid a coat who needs a coat, you just actually did it because in that moment you understood that God laid his life down for you and you just gave from what you had. Guess what? No one might even see that. Have you ever, uh, don't raise your hand, right? There's a qualitative difference, again, between two actions. One, I'm giving a coat because I'm awesome. And I have, so I give. And in fact, I know that I have absolutely everything. And so this coat means almost nothing to me and means so much to a kid who doesn't have one. There's freedom in there, man. There is freedom in there in bearing fruit. So what are we to do with all this stuff? Here's the so what moment. That's nice. So what? So what do I do with this? Now, if you've been part of our church for any amount of time, you know that I'm not the guy that's like, so now go home and balance your checkbook right, and I'll give you three steps to make your life better. These aren't steps. These are things that are in the text that are awesome, that I hope make our hearts sing. sing. The so what moment. So what does this mean for me? What are we supposed to do with this? Bear fruit. Right? That's the whole point. Bear fruit. Well, how do I bear fruit? In Jesus, we bear fruit. Okay, what does that look like? What does that mean? Because uh, I'm growing, I'm from Whatcom County, we're one part hippie, one part hick, and that's kind of how we roll, and I'm, and I'm kind of embracing some of my Whatcom County-ness as of late. I'm up Friday, I'm turning my own wheat on the thing that turns wheat, and I have friends being like, wow, where did you get that thing? I don't know, the internet, man, it's the deal, right? But I'm growing in my agrarian knowledge and understanding, but bearing fruit, uh, unless you've planted something, had it grow, and taken the fruit off, sometimes this can be a metaphor removed, and we miss that there's fruit to bear. Bear fruit. How do we bear fruit? Well, in Christ, that's how. What does it look like to bear fruit? What does it actually look like? Then? Case studies, maybe, in bearing fruit. Number one, and we'll try and get through as many of these as we possibly can. Number one, you've got to see that they're in Jesus, too, by the way. Number one, enjoy being loved by Jesus. Take time in your life 
to savor the reality that you are a sinner saved by the sovereign grace of God and that you did nothing to earn it. Take time out of your day to intentionally reflect on the fact that you didn't love God and he loved you. And enjoy it. Enjoy his grace and mercy in your life. Drink it in deeply. It's bearing fruit. Number two, enjoy depending upon Jesus. He's the vine and we're the branches. Enjoy the fact that you don't have to live your life doing spiritual push-ups, but that you live a life turning from sin into Jesus and that you live a life where it's absolutely wonderful to go to God and say, I have nothing. We looked at this a couple, couple weeks ago when we were finishing up uh, uh, Micah, right? That the idea of the quintessential man in the Old Testament is one who at the top of his game, when he has everything, goes to God and says, I have nothing, my hands are empty, help me turn to you in complete and utter dependence upon you. That the truest strength is strength that is the strength to come to God and say, I have nothing. You want to read the Bible and it's hard, I know, personally. I have four children, right? We have a busy schedule. You can turn to God and say, I need help just breathing in your word a little bit. I want to pray more, God. Please help me. I'm empty-handed. I need your help. My neighbor doesn't know you, and I do not know how to share the gospel with him. Please help me. That's strength. That's strength. And enjoy it. Enjoy that you can come to God empty-handed. Enjoy that you don't have to put on a face. Enjoy that you don't have to come up with some contrite-sounding uh, magic spell of coming to him in dependence. You just get to come to him day in and day out with empty hands. Uh, great, great guy in my life. He started his morning by literally throwing himself out of bed, praying and saying, God, this is your day. I belong to you. I have nothing. Do with me what you will. I love you, Jesus. Amen. It's a great way to start the day. He's really faithful to answer that prayer, by the way. Complete dependence. Enjoy it. Number two, enjoy the reality that Jesus made you clean. Again, savor the fact that you are clean, despite the fact that you've not done the things to cleanse yourself, but that you've been forgiven for your sins by a perfect and wonderful God. You're clean. My numbers are off. Sorry. Number four, enjoy bearing fruit. I thought we were talking about bearing fruit. Yeah, enjoy bearing fruit. Three subpoints, if you're a note taker. Enjoy bearing fruit by loving the vine, Jesus. Enjoy bearing fruit by loving the branches, the church. And enjoy bearing fruit by evangelism. You ever tell the gospel to someone who didn't believe? And yet you did it? Isn't it odd how much joy there is in that? There's still sadness when you're pleading and begging, please come to know him. But that you know that you did what you needed to do and that you served God faithfully. Love our city. Love the people. God is sovereign king over all things and he's calling people to himself. He's picked them out before the foundations of the earth and you've been sent here to tell them about who he is. If you don't believe me, read Ephesians 1. Enjoy bearing fruit by loving the branches if you're a member here, or you're going to be a member here, or you want to be a member here, if this is home for you, you got a church to love and to be loved by. My hope in my heart, I was telling Eric this, 
My hope and my heart is in 2015 that everybody's got somebody pouring into them and they're pouring into somebody else. The discipleship looks like somewhere in the church, not in a way that's like, well, I'm going to take you on as, I'm not picking on you, Nick, sorry. I'm going to take you on as my sound guy so that in three months you can be the sound guy and I'm not the sound guy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you and somebody else in a coffee shop with a Bible, you pointing them to Jesus, and you likewise having somebody in your life who's doing the same thing for you. How long should I do that for? I don't know when you're going to die. It's called discipleship. Keep doing it indefinitely. Part of being a Christian is having branches. It's not a vine and a branch, and you got your vine and I've got my branch, or uh, Jesus is the one vine and all our branches are sort of fart. Can you catch the agrarian metaphor? You ever go pick grapes? I picked grapes a couple weeks ago at my wife's grandma's house. On the vine... There they are. What are they all connected to? One vine. We're one people. One God. Right? It's a subtle part of the metaphor, but you need to see it. It's there. And of course, enjoy loving Jesus, which I think you do things like remembering your cleans, praying to him. Number four, enjoy trusting Jesus. Uh, this one is also very important. Enjoy trusting Jesus. It's like dependence upon Jesus. But the reality is, is the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I get to one of those thoughts. I'm like, how is this going to get resolved somehow? How's God going to work out all things for good here? Well, honestly, there are things that sometimes I just don't have an answer for that one. But I'm surprised again and again and again how God works out all things for good for those who love him. Trust him. He's the vine, we're the branches. And six, our final verse, right? Enjoy the joy of Jesus. Enjoy loving him, knowing him, serving him, serving others empowered by him, sharing the truth of him with this city. If you don't know Jesus, there's one joy, one authentic, true, real joy. His name is Jesus, and he'll set you free. There is one hope, one Jesus, one way to bear fruit, one way to know God. His name is Jesus. He's the one that pronounces us clean, and apart from him, you can do nothing, which means that you don't figure out some kind of magic code to become a Christian. You don't cook up some magic thing to say, or you don't start coming here dressed in your Sunday best. You turn to him and say, Jesus, I can do nothing. Please save me from myself. I do love you. I, I, want to, I confess with my lips. I believe in my heart that you're God, and he'll even empower you to do that. And if you do know him, man, are you enjoying your life in Christ? Is salvation just the thing that was your get-out-of-jail-free card or your fire insurance? Or is it something you understand that you've been saved from wickedness and horribleness, all these things, to life? Are you enjoying? Is your joy being fulfilled and complete in the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for you? If not, talk to him about it. The awesome thing is that the power of repentance is it's on a dime. Identify it, see it, turn from it, and turn to him.